the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. For an industry built on burning fossil fuels, the IMO's target to half CO2 emissions by 2050 look ambitious to say the least. If growth in seaborne trade continues at the current rate of 3.2% per year, it would mean around 32 billion tonnes of cargo being shipped by 2050. To hit the IMO CO2 target, it would require near total decarbonisation of ships' power by that time. That's, of course, using conventional thinking. What's called for here is a systematic reorganisation of global trade, shift in ship size, a slowdown in vessel speed, rapid replacement of diesel engines with electric and hydrogen alternatives, and a new approach to performance management and possibly even a wholesale rethink of organisational structures across the supply chain. Simple, really. Joining me to discuss how we get from here to 2050, I have the esteemed maritime economist Martin Stopford. Martin, thank you for joining the podcast this week. It's good to be here, uh, Richard. (laughs) Now, I've been following your thinking around this topic, Uh, you know, the evolution from your smart shipping thesis, uh, you know, how the interconnected nature and uh, and advanced telematics of of shipping are are helping shipping's efficiency drive, right through to a sort of slightly more sophisticated look at how the industry uses this efficiency and digitalisation to reduce the amount of CO2 it pumps out into the atmosphere. And I think it's been an interesting evolution of thought. But for our listeners, can you just give them the sort of the quick overview of, of how you think the industry is, is, is going to do it? How are we going to get from here to 2050, do you think? To be honest, when IMO came up with the 50% target of, for 2050, I couldn't really see how you could possibly meet that because... You know, one of the ingredients of my sort of pitch on digital technology has been that um, conventional uh, marine engineering and uh, uh, naval architecture have run out of ideas on this. They've they've been squeezing the same set of principles for 50 years now, and there's not much left in the cupboard to squeeze. And so where are you going to get a 50 percent cutting carbon in a business which is already very efficient. But when I started looking at it, I thought, well, let's not worry too much about the politics of how you get there. Let's just look at the practicalities of what you might conceivably do to make it work. And I think that's that really, Richard, is the key starting point. You have to start by looking at what you might do, and then you look at the political issues And finally, you might try and draw your conclusions about what the industry and the regulators and governments might uh, actually come up with to make the whole thing work. uh, I think that's a good good sequence. As far as the the practicalities are concerned, I think you summarised it quite well in your introduction. Uh, The logical place to start is with the things that we do actually control. I mean, whether we will choose to control them is another matter, but it is at least a big step forward if you can say, yes, these are things that could be done if we had the will to do it. And um, the first one on my list that I came up with and ran through my little model was um, the prospect of actually not shipping so much cargo as we might otherwise ship if there wasn't a climate change issue to deal with. If you look at the the sort of prospective carbon emissions by 2050, 
and you calculate the amount by uh, extrapolating the, the growth trend of trade in the last 50 years, I, I found you get to about 30 billion tons of cargo and roughly 3 billion tons of carbon emissions in 2050. If you just carry on as you are, you use ships designed with the same sort of features they have now, mm. and you grow trade at about 3.2% per annum. And that takes you to 3 billion tons of carbon, which is six times the IMO target, which is a bit daunting, really. <laughs> but if, in fact, you can cut that 3.2% growth back to 2.2%, then you can straight away take a billion tons off that three billion tons of carbon emissions. And actually, I don't believe that is so unreasonable. I, I mean, of course, an important part of the equation is that there are you know, six billion people in the non-OECD countries who I'm sure are going to want to import more cargo in future. They don't import much at the moment. So I think we have to allow for that. But I really don't think that all of the cargo we ship today is adding a massive amount of value if one took account of um, the carbon footprint. And I'm thinking uh, and some of the low hanging fruit is things like importers may choose to bring cargo from very distant places when there is an alternative source quite close by. Mm. And uh, in terms of freight, that might work fine. You use a big ship and the freight's next to nothing. But if you actually factor in the carbon footprint, it might be, say, three or four times as much from the long haul source. And so the, the, the cargo owner would make the decision to use the, the more local cargo. And there are many trades, I, I think you would find, that were quite price elastic, to use the economist term. If you put the, if you put the implicit carbon price up, however you do that, then you would actually reduce trade by to 2.2% and still allow the world to grow wealthy and people to have the services they need. So, I mean, that's my first step. Mm. You, you, just, you uh, just cut trade. Yeah. To think about that logically for a minute, what you're talking there is proactively reducing the current trend. But of course, you know, we're not, we're assuming that the current trend is going to be as a linear progression upwards at 3.2%. And that, of course, may not be the case. You know, the last few years we've been seeing, you know, changes in supply chains and rise of protectionism. You know, I know we're not talking about the politics of how we get there, but the actual nature of trade might be changing on top of that, of course. Well, that's, of course, um, if that happens without any action by anybody, then um, just by normal economic forces, that's fine. But I have to say, I... I, I mean, I talk to a lot of ship owners, and I think most of them would be disappointed to hear that trade was going to grow more slowly in future. I mean, I think you know quite a few people accept a bit of slowdown in the oil trade, but um, generally, most of the people I meet, their business expectation is that trade will continue to grow, and they would not regard 3% as a particularly uh, optimistic uh, forecast. They regard it as business as normal you know so i think really what, what i'm challenging here is not what might happen but mm. i'm simply saying perhaps we need to revise our expectations and then do what needs to, in the light of climate change that's okay all. 
So we've reduced world trade by uh, by a percentage point. Again, we're not tackling the politics of how we get there, but uh, that would be an interesting uh, transition, certainly. So what, what, what's next? So we're a third of the way there. The second thing, again, focusing on things we know we can do, is to slow down. And, I mean, we've seen very effectively that the fleet since 2008 has been slow steaming, large parts of it, and that has meant that the amount of carbon produced by the fleet, according to the IMO study, has not actually increased much since 2008. So, and I think probably we're talking about speeds of 12 knots. If we were to slow down to, say, 10 knots, then, according to my little model, that would knock another billion tonnes off our carbon footprint by 2050. And... Um, of course, there are many objections about whether ships are seaworthy and uh, whether that's viable. I believe that there's plenty of historical precedent for operating ships at 10 knots. You know, it's happened before. And if the ships are designed properly and with all the navigational equipment and so forth we've got nowadays, I think we could cope with that. I think it's, really think that it's quite doable. The question then is, can you do it? But if, if you do do that, then that takes another billion tonnes off the carbon emissions and takes us down to a little under 1 billion tonnes. And the IMO's target is about 470 million tonnes. That's half of the 2008 emission. So that really just leaves us with the problem of getting from, say, 900 million tonnes of emissions having slowed trade and slowed ships mm. to the 470 million tons and that really we have to do with a new generation of ships and as far as i can see the best spec for that is electric ships using fuel cells probably in coordination with batteries that will enable enable them to be more flexible in their power band and uh, to do a few other jobs like peak shaving and um, the fuel they would burn would be hydrogen, but you would probably use, you might use a carrier like ammonia. And of course, none of this is absolutely on the table at the moment, but it's possible. There are companies doing pilot schemes on fuel cells. Fuel cells have been used at sea. And like anything else, it's a matter of fine tuning the technology and demonstrating that it can work. And in my analysis, I started to deliver zero carbon ships using this sort of fuel cell type of technology in about 2025, just small numbers, and built up to total deliveries of zero carbon 2050. Mm. Um, and you know, it's an act of faith, but it's, it's maybe it's possible. Yes. And I, I think, you know, there so, is now that growing realization of course within the industry we've i think we've been focused as an industry so wholly on the sulfur cap recently that we've sort of almost lost sight of the sort of the rapid pace of innovation that does of course need to happen now this is not something that can be done in 2049 we need to start the uh, the r&d programs that are going to be producing these hydrogen fuel cells immediately because you know you're talking about ramping up from 2025 onwards this is technology of course that doesn't exist yet and again we're not talking about how we get there we're talking about you know setting the problems and, and what it is but this is a big problem for 
for the industry to get over. Just to maybe correct that slightly, the, the technology does exist. It's um, well used on land, but it doesn't exist in a marine friendly form. And if you look at a very similar situation when diesel engines were introduced or when steam engines were introduced, you have mm -hmm. to just wait until you, you know, it took quite a few years before from putting the first steam engine in a ship to getting one that, that didn't need its whole cargo dead weight to carry the bunkers, you know, mm. and that's the process. It was a matter of fine tuning. And I'd say the technology is there. The challenge is to fine tune it. And we have some very good companies working on this. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I've been speaking to CMB who are trialing a hydrogen ferry and they're getting increasingly optimistic about the prospect of reducing the size of the containment and uh, increasing the efficiency and the power outage from uh, these hydrogen engines. So, I mean, things are progressing, but, you know, as you say, this is a little bit more than fine tuning. This is a, this is a question of a complete uh, epoch shift in many respects. You know, that, that shift from, from steam to diesel that you mentioned, that's not something that happened immediately. You, you You've written about this extensively in your books over the years, and these transitions were not clean break. Yes, I, I would agree with that. And I um, I think one of the, the things that comes from studying history, one of the lessons from history, is that usually when you get these big changes, it takes somebody in the industry to really grasp the nettle and do it. I mean, in the case of the steam engine, it was Alfred Holt in Liverpool with the Agamemnon. He was the first guy who had the guts to build a steamship with a 60 pound boiler, which all his colleagues said would be highly dangerous, you know, but he did it. And of course, because of that, he was able to steam to Asia with only one bunkering stop. You know, similarly with the, um, the diesel engines, you needed the industry to to actually get a distribution of bunker networks and to um, to sort of just reorientate itself to a very different system of shipbuilding. And Indeed. That, again, that took a few years. Took a few um, years, and of course, for Mr. Holt, I don't think it was a wholly successful uh, initial foray, was it? He uh, he he ended up staying there for a while, didn't he? Well, he yes, it was interesting. He. When he got there, he found that he couldn't fill the ships. He had great difficulty filling the ships. Um, it was really only when he got together with John Swire that, uh, as his agents that he managed to fill them. But the, the happy story was, I think, in the Agamemnon was 1866. And in 1869, I believe he got a tea cargo, which, according to my calculation, paid for about 40 percent of the ship. He got just on one cargo. So there is some first mover advantage there somewhere in history for people to reference. You know, we, we yeah, can say that well, you know, there, is, is... there is an advantage for the innovators to grasp onto. Yes, I think innovators do it because they like to, in the same reason people climb mountains, you know, they, uh, <laughs> they want to see what's up there. It takes guts. But interestingly, you know, TK are just commissioning some shuttle tankers, which are a very nice example of using every bit of modern technology you can lay on to, um, to, to improve the carbon performance. I mean, they're using gas uh, fired engines and um, they're using their oil tankers, but they, as I understand it, they're using the um, gas emissions from the oil cargo. They're burning that and uh, a number of other things which they're claiming that they have cut the carbon uh, emissions by 49% uh, I believe on these ships. So. 
there's a lot which determined owners can do if they really put their mind to it. And of course, I have to say, their checkbooks, ships yeah. like that don't come cheap. <laughs> no, no, indeed. And uh, you know, speaking of not coming cheap, the final step in your sort of four point plan is that last bit that is going to be quite tricky. I guess it's a project that's almost in flow at the moment, but you're arguing that in order to make the previous steps that we've discussed, re reducing the amount of trade, developing new carbon emissions, propulsion systems, and slowing down, you're going to need a, a bit of a rethink in terms of how the organization's structured almost. Is that right? Yes, I, I think shipping almost uniquely has much the same personnel system it had in Roman times or the, you know, the ancient Greeks almost. You know, it's um, for very good reasons. The ship is controlled by the master. Everybody on the ship reports to him. And of course, if you're in a hurricane on a lee shore, that's terribly important. But nowadays things are changing. And really to make this digital technology work, we need the ship to work alongside the shore-based facilities and in the bulk shipping certainly this is quite problematic because you know the average bulk shipping company has only two people on shore for every ship at sea or it might even be a little less than that and if you look on the average ship you know the the, the four sort of managers on the ship the the, the master the the first officer the chief engineer second engineer they probably account for half the wage bill and so if you've got 50 ships you've got 200 senior managers on the ship and you've got probably only 200 people in the whole organization you know so um i think in that situation we really need to make the job on the ship more rewarding integrate it much more and find ways to do that and i i do believe that's something which is very difficult to do. I mean, I've spoken to many people in the industry about this, and I don't think anybody would argue that either with the fact that we have a personnel issue at the moment. But we are getting some technology coming through, which I think will make all of this more pressing. I mean, a good example is um, I think Sperry Rand have just come up with a sort of networked um, navigation system which means that it has various advantages on board the ship, but it does mean that the people on shore can see exactly the same navigation information as the people on the ship. And that means that in situations where you want to do voyage planning, you have a difficult situation, you get round the position where the master is having to explain over the phone what the position is, you can actually share the information and the people experience people on shore can actually provide the thoughtful help and assistance that um, would i think be enormously valuable you know technology is coming along and um, all of this i think will help to leverage up a situation where we move to a more horizontal organization where you integrate ship and shore much more there's a, a duality there there's the you know the need to uh, you know improve the technology on ships and i think you know one of the talks i saw you at recently you made the comparison between a, a late 60s bmw and a, and a bmw just off the production line now and while they look roughly the same shape and have four wheels and a, and a roof 
the difference between the technology involved in those cars is, you know, you, you, it's a complete shift in terms, you know, basically looking at a computer on wheels there. But you look at a ship built in the late 60s versus one that's now. Yes, I mean, there is some efficiencies and, uh, you know, some improvements, but ultimately you're looking at roughly the same thing. I mean, we haven't quite made that leap in terms of applying the available technology, far less innovating new stuff. Yeah, I, I agree with this. And I think one of the very big things that happened after the great crisis in the 80s when um, the, was that the cargo owners generally withdrew from active involvement in the shipping industry other than ship inspections and they left the whole shooting match to the owners and I think that's a great loss because a lot of the things that you want to do you need the active participation of the cargo owners. And if they're just going to sit on the other side of the negotiation and their aim is to save two cents a barrel on their oil transport, that tends to move you into the sort of cheap and cheerful lowest cost option. Mm. And it makes does make it very difficult for the industry to develop these sort of systems. And um, I mean, one of the, you know my main feelings is that we do need somehow to bring the cargo back into the business and believe me i mean when i started working in the early 70s the oil majors literally ran the oil transport business mm. you know they managed every part of it and the ships were well managed and the productivity of tankers was enormous i mean it was virtually perfect ships didn't waste time they were fully loaded they went at exactly the planned speed and any problems came up the majors would coordinate to deal with it i mean they'd probably get arrested for doing it now i don't know <laughs> but, um, we're not talking politics you know, I <laughs> I, um, but you know i think these are the very hard things to do and it goes alongside it takes two to tango mm. and i do feel very much i mean, I mean ship owners will say well the charters won't pay. I've been in this discussion over the mm. digital technology and you can't disagree. And, you know, as long as the cargo is solely interested in the minimizing the cost of freight, this is going to be very difficult. But I would like to see every ship owner and every charterer with a dashboard on their desk. And when they get up in the morning, what they see is the carbon footprint of their cargo on the current trip and a time series showing <clears throat> how it's developing and whether it's improving mm. and whether it's meeting the sort of targets they've set in their budget and plan for meeting the global warming target and for looking after our grandchildren's future. Seems like a, a reasonable place to leave it. Martin, thank you very much. I mean, it's uh, one hell of a journey you've taken us on from uh, from, from 20 almost 2020 to 2050 we will see how this pans out but i, I rather think it's probably not the uh, the last conversation we'll be having on this topic but uh, for now martin stopford thank you for joining the live podcast think so. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very well, much thank you very much for, uh, for for your attention thank you bye-bye